But when you're a young coach and you don't quite understand that and you lose three or four games on the trot, you know, the first thing you do as a coach is you beat yourself up and um, you, you you sort of overanalyze your own performance to say, well, I must be crap. Uh, I can't get the best out of my team. But you have to go through some of that. You know, it's inevitable um, to go through that, to come out in the, in, 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 in the treasured sort of land, if you know what I mean. Hello and welcome to the Pro Rugby Pod. I'm your host, Brian Moylet. I'm a former Irish international age grade player. And each week I chat with a player, a coach or a person involved at the top end of the game to hear about their story, get their insights and find out what life is like in professional rugby. On Instagram, I'm the Offfield Rugby Coach. That's at Offfield Rugby. Please follow me there and let me know any thoughts or feedback you have for the pod. Please subscribe to the pod if you haven't already. Please leave a rating and a review wherever you're listening. And also, please share the pod with some friends. Those simple actions have a big impact and are really, really appreciated. My guest today is Mike Ruddock, who is currently the Ospreys Development Director and in the past has been the head coach of Leinster, Worcester Warriors, the Irish 20s team, the Barbarians and the Welsh national team where he won a Grand Slam. We chat about challenges and tough times that he has had in his career, what he has learned from them, and what advice that he would give young coaches today. Mike talks about how he would beat himself up in the past and shares really openly what young coaches today can do to avoid going into what he calls dark places. He chats about his time with Leinster Rugby. He was the first professional coach there, and he talks about run-ins that he had with the board and how he kind of went against the grain when giving Brian O'Driscoll, Shane Horgan, Leo Cullen and the likes of those players their first professional contracts. Mike has won trophies nearly everywhere he's been, often turning around struggling teams, and he talks about what he does to inspire players and build winning cultures, and shares what coaches need to understand to get teams to peak and then stay there. Mike coached Lansdowne FC from 2011 to 2019, which is one of the top clubs in Ireland, and that's one level below the professional teams. And while he was there, he won three All-Ireland Leagues. Before he joined, the club had never won any. I played at Lansdowne from 2010 to 2015, and Mike chats a little bit about our time there together and the team that he built. A lot of players that he coached in Lansdowne during that period have gone on to become pros, Irish internationals, and one was on the Lions Tour this summer. So here's episode number 15 with Mike Ruddock. I'm here with Osprey's development director, Mike Ruddock, and my old Lansdowne coach. So four wins from five starting the season for the Ospreys, Mike. Good start in the field. Yeah, look, we had a great win as well the other night against Munster. Um, you know all about Munster teams, Brian. You know all about what the Irish uh, sort of provincial rugby is all about. They're tough to beat. You know, a lot of um, great work done over in Ireland to get those provinces up to speed. So for us, it was a, it was a great win. And, um, you know, we've got a very, very good coach in Toby Booth, um, who's an excellent coach. He's been around the block. He's not just a, an experienced coach, but he's innovative. Um, you know, he's, he, he's very hands-on as well, nuts and bolts, but he's also very intelligent in his approach and articulate in his approach. And, um, 
very consistent in his approach. I think, you know, the messages he gives are consistently sort of aligned to his game plan and his, his sort of philosophy on rugby. So I think it, it helps the players to be really clear about what's expected of them, you know. So, um, yeah, no, we delighted Toby's on board and to beat Munster uh, is is very credible. And to meet them, beat them in a, a Munster sort of style, if you know what I mean, we we have physical them, them really to a certain degree. There wasn't a lot of tries scored, but, um, you know, we got into them. Uh, that was great. And as you said, the results are much better. When I first came back, from Lansdowne to the Ospreys, I think they'd only won one game uh, that season up to the point I arrived. So, and just after, so um, it's it's going the right way for us. We're very very pleased. Yeah. So, what was your job like? What have you done over the last two years? Because you went over with a different role, didn't you? Kind of an interim role at first, and now you're development director. Yeah. So what happened was, um, and this is what I tell the young coaches like yourself. The power of the, of your network, you know, um, exactly what you're doing through these podcasts. You're reaching out to people you know. You're building your network, people you don't know, I'm sure. And I think that's that's really important because, you know, it is all about people. And if people like you and people understand you and and got an idea of what you're about, there's more chance you're going to pick up coaching jobs in the future. You know, rather than just sending a CV. So. Very quick sort of background, really, to my uh, involvement with the Ospreys was um, the guy who got me to come and play for Swansea back in the day. You know, I lived up in in the Welsh coal mining town up in the mountains, and um, most guys from my area went east to East Wales, like to clubs like Newport or Pontypool. Uh, but you know, uh, Swansea came to watch me play. And we're looking for a replacement for a, an international flanker that was standing down. And a guy called Mike James, who became the chairman of Swansea Rugby Club and then uh, the chairman of the Ospreys, eventually, uh, he came to see me play and he came up to see me and, and asked me to go west and join Swansea, which was unheard of in those days because it was a 100-mile round trip after work. Um, you know, uh, Swansea was a place I... I would normally go for my summer holidays, Brian, because it would be yeah. like pit posts. We uh, they'd bring us up once a year to see a bit of daylight and go to the seaside, <laughs> and then they put us back in the in the coal mine. So I was sort of from that sort of uh, backdrop. So I played for Swansea, then I got busted up to an industrial accident. I fractured my skull and broke my back and stuff, and I had to finish playing rugby. Um, but Mike James came on to me then. I'd been coaching in Ireland in Beckley Rangers and he rang me up and said listen we're not doing very well will you come and coach Swansea so um, when I took over Swansea they just Welsh leagues had been introduced so when I played it was an official leagues we played the Welsh clubs but we also played the English clubs we played Bath, Gloucester, Bristol, Harlequins, Leicester as well as Newport, Cardiff, Lethy, Pony, Breathe, Regend, all those teams and then he brought in Welsh leagues and Swansea were one of the top four clubs but the first year of Welsh Leagues, they finished last but one and got knocked out of the cup very early by a low, lower-rated team. So Mike James ran, rings me up and asks me to come and coach uh, Swansea because one of my earlier clubs, Cross Keys, had beaten Swansea and we were one of the less fancy teams, you know. So um, I think I made an impression. And going back to my point about networking and, and reaching out and, and getting to know people is... Um, 
once he knew me as a player and knew I gave sort of 100%, I wasn't the most talented player, but I gave 100%. And once he knew that and he came back and asked me to coach, uh, he knew I'd give 100% to that job. And the following year, I managed to recruit some some really good players. My first season in in uh, Swansea as a coach, my former club as a player, um, and we end up winning the league. So, uh, in fact, we won two leagues and won the Welsh Cup and beat, uh, in 92, we beat Australia with the world champions. So we went from last but one to suddenly beating the world champions. You know, it was, wow. it was a fantastic time in my coaching career, one that... Um, you know, I'll be forever thankful for to you know to Swansea for giving me that opportunity. Um, after I left Swansea, then I became the first um, professional coach, if you can call it that, at the time because we were still very amateur of Leinster. So you know, my my sort of career went on and on. Um, so to cut to the chase and answer your question, so when Ospreys weren't doing very very well. Um, and we're only, I'd only won the one game, Mike James rang me up and asked me if I'd come and help again. So I think that's the power of the network, and that's a, you know, a big message, I think, for rugby coaches like yourself. You know, always be friendly and helpful to people around you and um, engage with people around you, because I think you never know what it might lead to, you know? Um, and I, I have to say, it probably wasn't a strength of mine. I, you know, you know me, I've always been a bit grumpy. Um, so I probably haven't been uh, overly welcoming with different people at different times. But Mike James must have saw something in me. Uh, knew I was a good competitor and I wanted to win and um, brought me back to the Ospreys. Uh, now, bear in mind, Brian, I was sort of 60 at the time. And I said to Mike, I'm not going to be the frontline coach. You know, I, I, I'm just going to be too old for that. You need someone who's got the energy to take you forward for four or five years. But what I could do. I could come and help you for you know six nine months to try and put some shape into it, as say a performance director, and then really you know I think if we get the right guy we can leave him run with the ball and he should be able to drive the ship himself and I can probably morph into another area where I can be of support to him and add value to the club, and that's with recruiting you know younger players into our pathway, so that was the sort of agreement and and that's how it unfolded really. Um, Part of my job when I first came over was to do a bit of an audit on where we were, what I thought things, what what I thought we needed to do to get things back on track. One of which, obviously, was to appoint a new head coach. We got the new head coach we wanted. We got the assistant coach. We put structures into the club, and we did a we did a, a quite a, a sort of good piece of work, Brian, which I think could be informative and useful to young coaches like yourself. And you can use it at any time, I guess. Um, but certainly in this instance, I thought it was it was quite a good sort of thing to do for me. Um, and we called it we called it the helmsman uh, meetings. And you know, the helmsman drives the ship. Uh, and you know, in a big club like the Ospreys, with lots of different heads of department uh, on the rugby side and on the business side, you got heads of marketing, heads of uh, commercial. Head of operations, head of uh, media. Then on the rugby side, you got head of uh, medical, head of strength and conditioning, head of analysis. There's so many people involved. Mm. So I got everyone involved to these health meetings with the head of the department. I've got in six or seven senior players, two or three younger players, and um, 
I also got in all the directors and I strategically placed different people on different tables uh, to sort of match different sort of aspects of uh, the dynamic, I think. Um, I basically asked them two simple questions and you'll recognize these from my time of working with you. You know, what do we need to do to maintain our successes? You know, what do we what are we good at? Uh, and how do we maintain those things that we're good at? Because it's easy when you've only won one game just to look at the bad things and beat yourself up, you know. Uh, but the Ospreys have won more silverware than any region. So it was important we looked at that aspect and remembered all the good things that the Ospreys had did and, and have done over the years and drilled down into what actually helped them to achieve those things. Um, and then I asked the question, you know, what do we need to work on? So you remember those that terminology, what do we need to work on? And let's drill down into those areas. And basically, we, we did four or five sessions around it with the directors, with the players, with the heads of department. And in its most simplest form, the big, the three big things that came out were um, we need uh, greater communication across the whole club. So, for example, when I first went in, players would read that um, you know, we'd sign players uh, from from outside and, and no one in the club knew about it until they read the paper, for example. Yeah. So, you know, things like that, you know yourself, Brian, you know, if, if people, you can over, I think it's better to over-communicate than under-communicate. So just keep the clarity there, keep the understanding going of what's happening. Um, so the three big things that need to improve are communication right the way across the board. Uh, not just on the rugby side, but on the business side, so you know, better sort of uh, alignment of that communication process. Greater unity. I think it was felt there was a little bit of a divide between the the business and uh, and the rugby. So we need to work on strategies to bring that closer together. Um, and then uh, so we could support each other and work with each other. For example, you know, players turning up to uh, corporate and commercial functions. You know. So it's really important because uh, you know that helps to generate income and uh, and revenue streams. But if the players don't understand why they're doing it, if they haven't got any empathy towards that particular area of um, of, of of business, they might not engage, and then it becomes you know a, a situation that's not particularly good for the player to end up or for the business that's promoting their product and, and wants to work with the club, you know. So we, we spent time getting into those areas. So communication, unity. So we work better together or we looked at how we could make that happen and then trust, you know, uh, the third thing. So once we sort of got into that and we, you know, we started to burst a few sort of boils around stuff that was historical, uh, we realized that it's a pretty simple sort of fix, really. You know, if we... If we start to communicate better, if we start to work better together, we put systems in place that allow us to do that, and we get a greater understanding of how that shapes up and how that happens, then you know we can start to trust uh, each other in the organization and get on with things you know and um so so that was my role initially, and then you know getting the you know getting through that that difficult period of of sort of um making the environment a more productive and positive environment because we knew then we had to, you know, what we had to do. Um, I then, as I said, make sure we got the right coaches and then stepped away a bit so that uh, we could get, let this guy run the ship. And, you know, I've got to tell you, Toby Booth is doing a great job. Awesome. 
And yeah, it looks like in the performances. And interesting there, you said you brought in players into those conversations, like senior players. And that's something that I always felt you're really good at, like empowering the players and players had a voice. But also you brought in young players, two or three young players into those conversations. Yeah, look, you know, we just thought this is a genuine opportunity and a unique opportunity, really. So, um, you know, I discussed it with a couple of uh, of people in the environment at the time, like my general manager of rugby. Um, and I just said, look, what what guys, you know, it's, it's obviously we're going to get some of the senior guys in, like, you know, the captain of the club and uh, and some of the internationals. You know, do we, is there a need to get anybody else in? And we discussed that and kicked that about and. You know, he came up with a couple of ideas around youngsters that, you know, would be would be good to to get involved. Even if they didn't say too much, we thought it could be a bit of a legacy issue as well. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. You know, an understanding of how we develop culture going forward. You know, so that as and when some of those senior boys go forward uh, and, and move into retirement or whatever, um, then there's going to be a couple of younger players in the room who are going to become the senior players who will perhaps look back at those meetings and say, hey. Whenever we had a very difficult time, it was pretty simple. We had, we, we sort of sat down and talked about how uh, we uh, you know we do things really well and what we need to work on. And I guess the big sort of terminology that I t- tended to use it, it it is again old school, old fashioned stuff um, that I tended to say was, look, we've let pimples become boils, and you know now we've they've been very sort of uh, angry and painful and you know impacts your performance so what we've got to learn from this is whenever they're pimples we need to address them so they don't fester and become a a boil you know so i'm hoping eventually that you know as some of those younger players that were in the room will always remember that type of simple message so that if we are and brian you know yourself every team goes ups and downs but if we are ever in a in a tough time again um, that we'll we'll understand that there could be some simple fixes if we address, you know, if we if we collectively address some of the the pimples at that time and stop them becoming bigger and, and more ferocious, you know. Yeah, no, and I I'd kind of forgotten about that. I love what you're saying there about like what are we doing well, or sorry, what can we yeah, what are we doing well and what can we do better? Because I remember like my first full season in the senior team with Lansdowne, I think we were eight and eight, like one eight last eight. And some things just weren't quite clicking. And at times we'd lose two or three on the trot and you're kind of looking around and it's kind of not doomsday, but people are kind of wondering what's happening here. And just by you pulling people in and just having those conversations, it kind of allows you to to see that you are doing some things well and to just have those conversations around the team so that we can turn the ship around really yeah and look every team goes through um a cycle of growth maturity and decline and you know what i sort of loved about not i'm a big soccer fan but um so alex ferguson always seemed to be able to predict the decline of a player and of the team and you know sometimes in the early days the fans would go a bit mad if he sold a couple of star players on and then he'd bring mm-hmm. in young Beckham, David Beckham, and and all that sort of stuff. You know, Cantona would have gone, and yeah, like so Beckham comes in. I might might have got those time scales wrong, but you know what I'm trying to yeah, you're right. I'm trying to get across, and he was unbelievable at predicting decline. Now, what we found in Lansdowne was, in a lot of ways, we were victims of our own success. So we had like a two year cycle 
where we had a two-year sort of growth. And in the second year, we'd probably do very, very well. Or certainly the third year, we do very well as a team. And then either guys would, would leave and go off like yourself to North America or uh, some boys went to Dubai, Australia, uh, that sort of stuff, to take on new life challenges. Others would retire. Um, you know, and some would get professional contracts. So then we'd have to start back in the growth uh, uh, phase. And when you're in the growth phase, Brian, as you know, and, and this is something that I've taken me a long time to learn as a senior coach and a head coach, and I beat myself up about it so much over the years. And Looking back, I, it was pretty simple. Once I understood the growth maturity decline and I could articulate that better, I was more at peace with the losses, if you know what I mean, because mm. you know, you go back to your processes then, Brian, as you know from coaching, you know, you just, you put your, your stepping stones in, you put your processes in, and you know one day uh, that you will have those incremental gains and, 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 and those improvements that hopefully should result in, in better results. Um, but when you're a young coach and you don't quite understand that, and you lose three or four games on the trot, you know, the first thing you do as a coach is you beat yourself up. And um, you, you sort of overanalyze your own performance to say, well, I must be crap. Uh, I can't get the best out of my team. But you have to go through some of that. You know, it's inevitable um, to go through that, to come out in, uh, in, 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 in the treasured sort of land, if you know what I mean. And I, I still remember, it'd be far way before your time, but I mean, Munster had a lot, for example, had a lot of... Um, Disappointments in in Europe, they get so far, then they lose in the final. You know the the Neil back situation when he put yeah, the ball back. Always, yeah. Sorry, before so that, all yeah. our effort, all that, all our effort went into it. They could have won it, but you know something happened, and it was out of their control. They couldn't control that, um, and I'm sure they would have beat themselves up a little bit. But they kept on digging in, putting the process in, working so hard to get there, and eventually those. Those sort of decisions, um, I would say, <laughs> they cheated or, or put their hands in the scrum. But you know what I mean? They overcame those difficulties, learned from them, and um, eventually get the results. And the same happened with Leinster. You know, they had to go through years of growth before they were able to mature. You know, and again, looking at the Leinster model, this is what I'm trying to replicate here in, 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 um, in, in the Ospreys is, what they're able to do is blood so many great young players out of the schools rugby in Ireland and, and, and develop them that they never have that decline phase. They never fall off the cliff because there's always that young talent pushing through, you know? So uh, I think that, um, uh, as you said, you know, the, the maintains and the work-ons are, are really important. But I think underpinning all of that, it's important for a young coach to realize that there's going to be growth, maturity, and decline. And if if you can get into that on a deeper level, then you can put some context around your wins and your losses. Because I've been both ends of the spectrum. You know, for example, uh, I mentioned earlier, we beat the world champions, Australia, in 92. You know, uh, Swansea uh, beat Australia. Two years later... We had a record defeat against South Africa because I'd sort of hang on to. So I'd be patting myself on the back, thinking I was a great coach. You know, I'd have all these yeah. triumphs, 
and uh, and then suddenly I had my my trousers pulled down and um, we got savaged by South Africa at home. You know, and a year later they went on to win. Uh, so in '94 they they hammered us, and a year later um, they went on to win uh, the World Cup and the Kitch Christie, the the coach. So I realised then. Uh, a bit like Kip, Kipling says about treating the imposters both the same, that, um, you know, there was an inevitability about that because I'd, I'd hang on to the team for too long, you know, and we, we, we fell, off, fell off the cliff. So, you know, you've got to go through that sometimes again as a young coach before you can realise that art of trying to treat your team so that you, you don't fall off the cliff and you keep that um, dynamic moving forward. Yeah, it's so true being objective, like being able to step back and have a look at the bigger picture versus the game to game. And I think I'm kind of getting better at that. But it's so true what you say about Munster. Like I remember Raj missing kicks in the final. I think, I don't know, he missed three or four kicks against Leicester Tigers in 03 or 04. And then Stringer, O'Connell, like all those guys were playing in those earlier games. And yeah, there's nothing like experience to teach to teach young players. 100 percent there brian you know and you know if i only sort of got my head around a lot of this stuff when i was a young coach like yourself you know i think i would have enjoyed the ride more (laughs) but i think you know you're always you're always battling with uh your own demons in a way in that uh you you want to win every game uh and that's good i'm sure you like every other coach wants to do that because that's what drives you you want your team to get better uh you want uh, to you know, uh, to have a better lineup next week than you will have this week. You want to have a better defense two weeks time than you've got this week. You know, so you're always looking for improvement. You're always looking for perfection. Um, but every now and again, you you might lose a few games, and a chairman pulls you in and and says, "What's going on with this team?" And you know, if you can take that step back, and I probably didn't do it often enough, but if you can take that step back. And uh, certainly the Leinster experience comes to mind. You know, um, the reality was a lot of players had gone off to England when professionalism first happened. Con Roche went to Harlequins, for example. Malcolm O'Kelly went to uh, London Irish. Eric Miller went to Leicester. So I came in uh, and I started contracting young kids. So, for example, I gave Brian O'Driscoll his first contract. Um, Shane Hogan, all those guys. Leo Kellen. Um, and the reality is, even though we won the Interprovincial Championships that year, you know, uh, that was over three games. Over a season, we never had the depth. You know, we never had the experience. We never had, um, you know, the learnings to allow us to to be anywhere near European champions uh, form, you know. And, you know, I used to have a bit of a tough time with the, you know, the Provincial Committee demanding sort of results. And I... I bark a bit when really, if I look back now, I'd say, guys, in three or four years' time, if we keep building this squad together, the likes of Gordon Darcy's, they're going to be great. This is going to be a great team, you know? We've yeah. got to work through it, you know? Um, so, you know, when you're a young coach and you want to win every game and that's driving you, uh, you don't always have the ability to step back. But if you think about it, you know, I think that's the big, there's two big sort of aspects to coaching I think that's changed, and that's, People have a, a a better knowledge now of, of of things like training age. That you know you can't just put a player in to top class rugby and expect him to outpower an international player. He's going to have to have a certain amount of training age under his belt of 
not just in the gym, but you know, it's, it's his skills yeah. and his learnings and his decision making. And the team's got to have a certain amount of uh, performing um, time together, you know, and, and growth time together. So I think those things have changed a lot more. You know, I think back in the early days, it was very much like soccer. If you lost, lost a couple of games, uh, you know, the, the soccer managers would get fired, you know, left, right and centre, and they still do. Yeah. Um, but I think there's a better understanding in rugby that, uh, it you know, performances and growth takes a little bit longer, you know, than perhaps in the early days of professionalism uh, was was sort of tolerated because, you know, that knowledge wasn't there. That that accumulation of understanding of sports science, meeting uh, technical ability, meeting uh, the ability to finance and resource uh, a high performance environment. You know, my first training session with Leinster, the chief executive said, you, you can have three quarters of the pitch in Donnybrook, but you can't have the other 22. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then, yeah, and then everybody wants a high-performance team, you know? Yeah. Um, so I think those are big things that have moved on, you know? And uh, I think it's really exciting, like I said, for young coaches like yourself, because it's all sort of settled down a bit and people understand a rugby programme and a conditioning programme need to be aligned and worked together over a longer term. Whereas when I first started out, a chairman would bring you in and say, right, uh, right, sort it out, win a few games, you know, yeah. and we want to work it up, you know. Um, there, was, there was a lack of understanding and clarity around the depth of the work that needs to be done, not just on the rugby programme, but the recruitment programme, the scouting, um, the succession plan and the depth chart, all the areas that I'm into now to try and make sure that Toby Booth doesn't just have this growth period now, but over the longer term, he has that maturity period for an extended period. Yeah. And it's something you just touched on there with recruitment. And I remember after, I don't know, after we won a semi final or a final or something, and you were being interviewed or you know people were saying oh well whatever well done blah 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 this was long before, before i coached but you said great players make great coaches or it's easier to be a good coach when you've got good players and just like it's very humble of you but it's something that i remembered when i started coaching and at the start i was kind of you know thinking it was about me or my tactics or my planning or whatever but you start to realize it's if you empower you get good players in and you empower them, it's, it's half the battle, isn't it? And the importance of that recruitment, the development, all that side of it, versus just rocking up on a week one and making a team out of whatever you have. 100%. Um, you know, you're right. I've always said from day one, I'm always a better coach when i got better players. It's, 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 it's... And, and it's interesting, actually, you know, I sort of, you look out, out the corner of your eye at, um, at different coaches that have been successful and obviously some fantastic coaches out there. But even the likes of Steve Hansen struggled a bit with Wales in the early days because you know the players um, were just getting used to that type of professionalism and that type of rugby programme, you know? Uh, the All Blacks were, were further ahead, you know? So for all of us coaches, if, if we're not in the right team at the right time there's always challenges you know um and then there's even if you win with the right team at the right time like the all backs there's the challenge of 
pressure, the you know the expectation around that, you know. So you got a different challenge, then you got to work, you work your way through that, you know. So um, it's a tough old gig, but you know you're, you're spot on. I've always been, I've always said I've been a better coach when I got better players, one hundred percent. But you know, there then then that that leads you into the other area. So I think I mentioned about my Swansea team. So when I joined Swansea, they were last but one. Uh, I recruited four players, and uh, they made such a difference to my team. So uh, the first guy I recruited was a guy called uh, Garen Jenkins, who was a hooker, who was the last coal miner to play rugby for Wales. And he lived in 76 Robert Street, Annisabul. I can still remember his address, because in those days, there was no sat-nav or postcode, so I had to memorize this address and get up there. So I still remember the address. I managed to convince Garen to come and play for Swansea. I signed Scott Gibbs, who you know some people might remember as a famous lion who knocked over Oz Durant. I signed him from from Neath, and I signed um, an outside half from Bridgend, who I played rugby with in Swansea, uh, Alan Williams, who was a great outside half. Um, and yeah, well, so those three players actually uh, alone made such a, a collective difference uh, to to my team. So, you know. <sighs> Would we have improved from last but one? And adjust my coaching? I'd like to think so. Would we have won the league? Probably not. But you put Scott Gibbs in there, you put Alan Williams in there, uh, and you you, you know you put uh, uh, Gallen Jenkins in there, the hooker, uh, who, who gave us that scrum. And you know my love for the scrum, right? Yeah. You know my love for the scrum. And Swansea, we had all the players in Swansea, but we never had a scrum. So our First guy I wanted to get was the best scrummaging hooker in Wales. I asked who he was. He told me. I went and knocked his door, 76 Robert Street, convinced him to come and play. My loose head for Swansea, I was having a sandwich after the training one night, and my loose head was in Swansea University. I won't say his name. He went on to become a barrister, but at that time he was studying uh, English literature in Swansea University. And he said to me, um, Mike, is it true, I've just heard, he said on the grapevine, that we've signed Garen Jenkins, the hooker. So I didn't want this to leak out, so I thought I'd turn it back on him. So I said, oh, yeah, I said, that's interesting speculation. I said, um, uh, I think that's just speculation. I said, so but now we're talking about Garen Jenkins. I said, what do you think of him? He said, he's terribly dirty. <laughs> <laughs> so I knew then I had to sign him. Yeah. So I had to get- because <laughs> if my loose end prop is calling somebody terribly dirty, no wonder Swansea will last but one in the league. Yeah. So we need a bit of mongrel in there, and you know my love for the scrum. And if we get the scrum going forward, which we did for Swansea, uh, it allowed all the backs to play better. And I've stuck by that mantra all my coaching career, Brian. Um, you know, to me, it's still a very simple game. It's changed a lot over the thirty years, thirty-five years that I coached, but the same, the, the underpinning principles are still the same. Get possession, go forward, support, continuity, and pressure. Put the other team under pressure. Those are still the uh, main sort of principles of of play, the principles of the game. And you know, I think I've always said it's a simple game. If we get our scrum dominant, if we get our line-out drive dominant, stop the opposition doing a line-out drive, and we defend with a good line speed, get off the line, then... All the fancy stuff, the icing on the cake, you know, and you know all the little switch plays and shadow balls and all the missed passes and loops. Yeah, we got to do those, and we love those. But on their own, I don't think they'll ever win you the game. You you have 100%. to have you have to have all those other areas right 
And then what you do is you're on, well, you know my theory. I talk about red quality ball, amber quality ball, green quality ball. What you're doing then is you're starting, because your scrum is going forward by a couple of inches and you pass the ball at the back line, it's green quality ball. They run onto the ball. You're going to score more often, you know? So so I've tried to keep it very simple. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of people, when I talk to them about rugby, they, they walk away thinking, what an old dinosaur, because yeah. everybody's into shape these days. Everyone's into all the other stuff and terminology around it. But to me, it's it's a game of, of simple things and getting your flow right um, so that when you flow as a team, uh, you can get in that crisis corridor that I talked about and, and support it. And once you do that, I think, uh, you know, regardless of your shape and your systems and your patterns of play, um, you'll end up with a winning team. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. And I do the same myself now coaching, but like that set piece and getting dominance there, it affects the other teams so much as well. Like you, I think you mentioned it as well, but if the other team knocks on a ball and you've got a hugely dominant scrum, they just look at each other and go, oh, fuck. You know, because yeah. they're then afraid to attack or they're then, it, it's more than you getting your go for it. it. It psychologically affects them. Or if you've got a strong line, a strong mall, and you just know at set piece you can get go for it, they, it affects them so much more, you know, as well as giving you the impetus. Yeah, 100%. And you played back row, so you know if you're on a scrum and there's no threat um, of a double drive against you, you fly off the back of that scrum and you're knocking down the outside half, you're knocking down the centres, everybody's patting you on the back. The minute you're on a scrum and you're scoring backwards because the other team have double drove and you've got to dig in, right? That's the minute that, you know, opposition 10 then, when you do release the ball, has got more time and space and the winger's going to get the ball in time and space. You know, and you don't have to use that double drive every time, but once you say it's a weapon, the other team are worried about it. Same with the ball. You know, if you've got a good driving ball and, you know, they're going to have to put a couple of more numbers in it to defend that, then the same principles apply. When you do your eight, nine off the back of the mall uh, and your, your nine passes the ball out to the centre or behind the centre to the outside centre and you go wider, um, then, uh, you know, suddenly they've had to stay, stay tight to defend that mall. So it's it's that game of chess, you know, and... Uh, yeah, you know, I learned that the hard way up in Pool back in the day. Uh, we had we had all all the all the internationals. We had fourteen internationals in the team. I was the only non-international, and I was a B international. And we used to go to Pool and they had eight internationals up front, an international nine, international ten, and you know, no one ever heard of their backline. Um, with all due respect to them, because yeah. they never needed to, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, because. They just pummel us up front. We go backwards in the scrum. Uh, they just boot us and, and, and marmalize us. So what I learned was, you know, if we could play the rugby that I played for my team with Swansea, because we won, you know, the Anglo-Welsh table, we won the Welsh merit table, which were the unofficial leagues, and the, the Western Mail, which is the newspaper. We won the Western Mail Championships. Um, but we'd lose in a cup final at the Ponypool because they just screw us over. So we play fantastic rugby. We score all these great tries, but whenever we play Ponypool, same old story, battered. So when I went into coaching, I guess, without realising it, it started to shape my philosophy that if we could play this fantastic rugby that Swansea played, but combine it somehow and balance it off somehow with the way Ponypool played, 
then you might end up with a, a really good team. 100%. And when we when you came in at Lansdowne, I remember you, like we were previously, it was, I was with the 20s at the time, but like kind of a flash team that hadn't a lot of substance and not a lot of grit kind of, you know, win some games. So I remember you came in and put that kind of hard nose edge, just kind of explained that we're not going to win things if we don't have that dominance up front. And with, so when I was growing up, I loved the Ospreys. They were like my second team because they had James Hook, Gavin Henson, Liam, like uh, Shane Williams, all those boys. And um, Lee Byrne, because, you know, I like that flash. But, uh, and the Ospreys, uh, that I think has been a bit of their Achilles heel because, uh, to be honest, like, you know, 10 years ago, 12, they had all those players, but they didn't win much. I remember, you know, they'd lose to Munster, they'd lose to these teams that would just beat them up. And they had all these flash players, Alan Wynn, all of them. But is it something that you're trying to change with the culture of the club now? Um, no, not so much for me because I'm not there on a daily basis. I'm not in the bubble every day with the players and, and coaches and COVID has made that a bit more difficult. Uh, you know, I'm more on the longer term recruitment and the pathways and with the university and all that sort of stuff. But, um, you know, what I, what I did, I guess, was <laughs> try to recruit a coach that had that similar type of mindset, you know, mm. uh, that had been around the block, that sort of knew that, you know. And in Toby Booth, we, we've got a guy who, you know, I think is, you know, on the same sort of wavelength uh, that I was on and, be- and much better. You know, he's a much better coach than I ever was um, and a much more articulate and deeper thinking coach than I ever was. But he's very much rooted in um, the same principles that I loved and, and I, I understand. And, he, you know, if you sit down and talk rugby for him, with him, which I obviously did many, many times in, in the recruitment process and the interviews, it, it kept shining through that this guy, like uh, Brian, again, I, you know, lots of coaches, with all due respect to them, that they baffled me, right? Uh, yeah. When, get their playbook out and it's like a game of physics and I go, wow, you know I, I, I can't have known anything about rugby because this guy is just bamboozling me, right? Yeah. When I st- started talking to Toby, he had quite a bit of that in the back pocket, but he was in the back pocket and that was all the add-ons. What, what he sort of convinced me was that exactly what we talked about is there's a massive non-negotiable around being able to you know, win your own ball uh, to be able to uh, put other teams under pressure, to be physical. You know, w- when I interviewed coaches, I didn't just want to hear what shape they ran, what uh, skills they felt were important. I wanted to hear words like physicality. You know, I'm, I'm old school. I wanted to hear that word. Mm. And and it's like a, a bit of a taboo thing, you know, with the modern coaches that they get so wrapped up in the technical tactical aspects that sometimes I forget this it's not that well you remember my terminology from Lansdowne I I always used to say to you for every game boys this is not a game of touch rugby you know you have to be physical you know and uh, that's a non-negotiable and going back to like you said about Lansdowne being a bit flashy you know uh, one of the things I want to talk to you about is to me the best teams have a cause you know or the best athletes have a cause, or the best boxers have a cause to fight for, you know, whether it's to get out of the ghetto. 
So when you talk about all technical, tactical stuff, if you've got a cause to fight for as well, it's so powerful, you know? And um, I think the cause I tried to give you guys in Lansdowne was the perception of all the Munster teams were that we were flaky. Yeah. We were that, that uh, Flash Harry team, you know? Um, and that we had a cause to fight for to show that we weren't just Flash Harry. Yeah, we could score great tries. Yeah, we could you know, be the top try-scoring team in the league, which we were several times. Um, but we went on to win three All-Ireland Leagues, and I tell people this now to this day, that the reason, the only reason you can win three All-Ireland League titles is because you you have to go away from home to Gary Owen, Corkon, Young Munster, all those places, and you've got to be able to front up, and you've got to dig in when you're on your own line, five metres out, and you've got to come out there with something. You, you won't win it every time. But you've got to be able to come away from those sort of venues with, uh, you know, with, with some results. And I think the first year we won the league, uh, it might have been before you, you, you were still under 20s then, but we, we beat Gary Owen away. I think we beat them in the rain down there. Massive Limerick crowd turned out. And we, we won, I don't know, 15-0. And I, in fairness to the Gary Owen crowd, they, they clapped the boys off the field because it was never going to be a game of sevens. We just controlled the game from start to finish, give him nothing. And the flakiness around the Dublin Four Club, the posh Dublin Lansdowne, you know, chaps and all that sort of stuff, uh, we dismissed that. And and to me, that was that was something I'll always remember, you know. And we talked about it for years afterwards that that's what we wanted. And you know, again, to give you a couple of other ex- examples of of a cause. So my first year in Swansea, uh, I think I mentioned to you several times now that we we'd finished last, but one the year before. And the headlines, you know, the way they predict the team's form for the following season. So the headlines in the in the newspaper that August, when they previewed all the the, the teams, the headline for Swansea was super flops, super flops, and that was the headline. I cut it out. I put a notice board in the change rooms. I put it up on a notice board. We hadn't beaten our arch rivals Lethley in eleven matches. We'd finished last but one, and I said to the boys. That's going to stay up until we beat Clenetley. Um, And that's the cause we're fighting for. Forget leagues, forget win-loss ratios. You know, if we beat Clenetley, if we're good enough to beat Clenetley over the star team, you know, who knows, we're going to be right up there. So we won't worry about setting goals and targets in the league. We Our our cause is to stop the embarrassment of 11, 11 straight defeats to Clenetley. Uh, and we beat them last season to, 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 to win the league, right? And uh, I ripped it down. And I remember a sports scientist saying to me, a psychologist coming into the club, and I showed him around, and he saw this on the notice board. And he said, oh, it's very dangerous. And I said, is it? I said, explain that to me. He said, if you don't beat Clenetley, they'll start to believe it. I said, well, we better beat, beat Clenetley then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But, you know, I felt it was deeper than that. And, okay, we might have lost to Tlethi, but we had to keep grinding away till we beat them the year after the year after. A bit like what Munster's, you know, their cause was to win the European Cup and they had some disappointments along the way. But all the time, that was their, that was their thing, you know. And um, when I went to the Dragons, uh, we were supposedly, it was the first year of uh, regional rugby in Wales. And we supposedly had the worst pick. Well, we did, you know, I suppose on paper. Looked like we had the weakest team, and um, 
the benefactors that have run Newport Herbeville wanted to put less money in, and uh, quite rightly so. The budget was reduced, so we. But I was, I'd worked with a lot of players who played for Wales B, you know, because I coached the Wales B team, and I knew they were very, very good players. Okay, not the very top end internationals, uh, like the guys you just spoke about, the Lee Burns and those boys, but just below, and um, they weren't going to be away with Wales. They're going to be around. So I'm going to get those guys. So I went and recruited all those guys. And I think to this day, we still had the best finished in the league. We finished third uh, that year. But the point of the story was um, the press called us the rejects because they, they they seemed, their perception of it was we we had all the players that the other regions didn't want were rejected by them. They ended up in the Dragons. So our cause and every sort of team talk I did was about uh, guys. We we got we're on a mission here to prove, you know, forget the scoreboard. Let's get out there every week, bring some physicality and skill and, and 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 sort of passion to this because we have to prove that we're better than people give us credit for. You know, we're not rejects. We are, we deserve our our title of being professional players in a professional team. You know, so I think if you have a cause, Brian, as well, a bit of a chip on your shoulder, we. I've always been very balanced. I've got a chip on both shoulders. You know, so, uh, I think if you get that, it's, uh, it can be a very, very powerful thing, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And it's something that, it's funny you're saying that in the 90s, because like today it's kind of modern. Or, you know, there's a new version. They talk about Scott Robertson. It's a Crusaders doing theming, and it's it's similar. But what you're doing is the exact same. And I remember that when you talk about uh, like that we had a point to prove and like we would fully believe it being like, all right, fuck these, like we're going to, we're going to show them today. And, and something yeah. else that you were always brilliant with was making, like convincing every player that they were the best and just making everyone believe so much in themselves. Like I remember those pre-match meetings we'd have in the gym or whatever in the hotel in away matches. And like, we'd be, it's looking back with sports psychology like we would look around and be like i am the best you know like going out ready to kill but um was that something like talk to me about that i probably could have done that a bit better with you boys i probably in the twilight of my coaching i, I probably wasn't as good as i wanted to be but that's very kind of you to say so but and listen you were all such a talented group of players i have to tell you there's so many good players came out of that lansdowne sort of uh, production line and thankfully they still go I see the results now are still fantastic, yeah. you know. So, fair play to you know uh, to Mark McHugh and the club and people like Colin Good, you know, and and Steve Rooney behind the scenes who recruit fantastically well, you know. I think it's the club is it's just such a a really really top club now, and it's it it's sort of like you said, it had these difficult times where they perhaps didn't quite understand how to uh, pitch the whole thing. But now uh, the recruitment is so strong and the values are so strong and the culture is so strong at the club and the gym and the conditioning and the coaching that the guys are getting there now is, is so good that they will keep attracting the best talent, you know. And that's the other aspect that we should talk about over and above having a cause and, and putting the hard work in and uh, is, is is the cultural side, you know. is You know, I think I remember saying to you guys when I first came into Lansdowne, I want us to be the Leicester of um, of, of of Irish rugby, club rugby, because you know I coached Swansea, I coached um, 
Leinster in the early days of European Cup rugby. And Leicester were always there or thereabouts in Europe, you know, or there or thereabouts in in the English Premiership. And uh, if they didn't win it, you had to beat them in the semi-final or you had to beat them in the final. I was really impressed with their longevity, even though they've <laughs> they hit the bad patch and they're bouncing back a bit now. But just that mindset they developed, that ruthlessness they developed, you know, it's going back to the cause and that, you know, you're going into a battle and, you know that every time you take them on, you're going to have to really push yourself into that dark place. Otherwise, you don't get that result, you know. And in the biggest games, Brian, you've been there in those league shoot-offs. You've been there and those cup sort of matches and cup wins. You know, you, you've got to take yourself to that dark place, you know. And um, there's a physical aspect of that. There's a mental aspect. But there's a cultural aspect of all the hard work you boys have put in together. And and the bond you have for each other, and like you said, those feelings in the change room before you go out—that you not just you as a you know you're a bloody good player, but you respect everybody in that change room because they put the work in, they've bashed the uh, you know into each other all all training or whatever it is, and or worked on their skills to a certain level, or worked in the gym on the lifts, you know. And when you take the field with them, you you just feel it's such a powerful united force that nothing can beat you, you know. And when you get that sort of level of belief it's it's uh it's fantastic you know and developing that culture is a combined effort obviously the coach is going to drive it um but your players are going to drive that and you're going to drive uh that ethos and of hard work you know so fair play to you boys brian you know uh, at that time i thought you were class you know yeah cheers um and is it something that like you would have intentionally done because with the like building confidence in players and focused on that like would you have seen as a coach would you have seen like oh he looks like he's looking at the ground or he's kind of he needs a an arm around the shoulder he needs something um do you know what brian i think it's you know i think you've been very kind to me i think i could be very grumpy as you know in a coaching environment but uh what what i tended to do and i guess reflecting on it and I tell you what, one of the best coaching tools I ever sort of came across in the end was WhatsApp, you know, uh, because I would put a little video together of a clip that I wouldn't necessarily show to the whole team, but I'd, I'd send it off to an individual and I'd say, right, talk to me about this. So I tended to, towards the end of, you know, my, well, certainly, you know, through my spell in, in, in Lansdowne, I'd be able to do a lot of individual coaching and the empathy side of coaching mm. uh, around uh those little clips so i could have those communication moments uh without the emotion of the game or the training um you know so i could get into a bit of a deeper conversation with the player and perhaps show a bit of empathy there whereas when you turned up on a tuesday or thursday night i tend to drive you quite hard you know um and and sort of not be overly patient with things um and I'd probably, you know, that's that was the downside of just a Tuesday or Thursday night. You had a very limited window, so I sort of made my mind up that I wasn't going to overcoach and I wasn't going to, you know, perhaps do the empathy thing too well on the training nights. I'd try and do it away from the training nights and in those uh, other moments. And I tell you, again, what, you know, I, I coached for 35 years, but I learned something when I interviewed Toby Booth, which I wish I'd known 35 years ago. And 
you know, he made the distinction between having a relationship conversation and a performance conversation. And I thought that's so simple and it's so really great to, to, to do because, you know, you want to get on with everybody. You want to be, if you're the coach, you, you, you sort of want to be, you know, having a good dynamic going with the guys and, and, and everyone enjoying it. But you also know there's difficult conversations we had around selection and performance. And, you know, it's not an easy one for the coach, Brian. I'm sure you, you found that step in the other side of the fence that, you know, from suddenly being a player and being part of the team, the whole team dynamic, you're suddenly the leader. Yet you want to be connected to everybody. You want to be, you know, in touch with everybody. You want to feel approachable. You want to feel like you're a listener. But then you've also got to put the wall up a little bit and say, stop there because this is the time when I've got to tell you a few home truths or I'm not happy with your performance or whatever. Um, and, you know, to frame it within that conversation to say, Brian, let's have a chat. Um, you know, we talked yesterday about your family and we talked about your job and we, we, we chatted generally as we were going into training about, you know, all those things that help us to develop a, a good working relationship. But here's the moment where we need to switch over now into a performance uh, conversation, you know. And I really like that, being able to draw that distinction so that the player understands is two different elements to the coach's job. Um, but the coach is able to flick that switch himself, I guess, to draw that um, very visible and tangible, uh, you know, divide between when he needs to show empathy. And when he needs to be just very uh, pragmatic, if you like, and sometimes that within that pragmatism could be a, a very, you know, a, a big degree of empathy as well, or a big degree of positivity. It doesn't have to all be, you know, negative around the performance. It can be a lot of positivity around the performance, but it's framed in that moment, in that uh, in that context, and not just part of the general conversation, which sometimes. If the coach doesn't get that right, you know yourself, uh, it can mean a bit of a breakdown in the relationship between the player and the coach. Yeah. No, and it's interesting you say there about being grumpy or whatever, but we, I don't know, I certainly felt that, like, I knew that you were a winner and that you wanted us to be the best. And to be the best, you have to, as you say, be able to go to those dark places. You have to be able to put in the work. And it's, I've had coaches who are on the field, you know, it's all happy, clappy and whatever. And it's like, I just and I think we just knew that it was like, all right, well, we have to hit these standards. Like we have to be, you know, it's like you're not doing it to be an asshole or whatever. It's your, you know, you want, you know, what level we need to get to, and that's when you're buying into it and you want to be a top club and a top team or whatever. You're buying into that, and you want to be pushed. You want to be number one. You don't want to be mid table. You don't want to be number two or three. And it's, I think. It's re it's really interesting you say there about the kind of um the two different conversations and for sure there's it's important to have that understanding to off the field develop the relationships and build them, but then on the field to drive standards. Yeah, yeah, no, I think so, and um, you know, it's again probably what sort of helped me a bit was the fact that we had limited time with with Lansdowne, so it just became an automatic sort of thing that we had to maximize the time on feet, you know. I think sometimes in and that's the challenge, I think, in 
more um, sort of inclusive rugby programs and more comprehensive ones where there's like full time is finding a balance where you break things down to such a level that um, it's it's very detail oriented and it's very um, you know there's a lot of empowerment in there, but there's obviously a lot of um, times when you know you can't shout the ball all week or you can't be grumpy all week or you can't be um, you know pushing the the the, the, the super flops we got a cause mm. button because there's so much technicality around it, you know? So I think that's a real challenge for the coaches. And I think that's where the players in the modern professional environment have got to take a lot more ownership of that cultural message as well. You know, I think they've got to drive those standards and listen, you know, I've watched Alan Wynne Jones train and people like Justin Tipper train. And I tell you, you know, it's the coach wouldn't need to say anything because yeah. those boys are doing it for him, you know? Uh, it's fantastic, you know, when you see guys doing that. And in first you boys in Lansdowne, you know, we, we got to that level. We got to that level where, you know, you boys would sort of take a lot of pressure off me there and and you'd be quite hard on yourselves as well, you know. So, no, it, it was a good, a good experience. And, I, you know, I have to tell you, Brian, I so enjoyed the club and I so enjoyed the people there and I so enjoyed, you know, you guys and the different teams I had because it was, like I said, it was a lot of rebuilding at times. Um, and to see so many good boys kick on to become professionals out of it as well, I think that was that was really good to see as well, you know. So, um, and and again, that that goes back to the cause. I think I'm sure within it was the team thing to show that we weren't, um, you know, the flaky D4 team that people would would frame us as. But I'm sure for a lot of guys like the Matt Healy's, uh, you know, the Tom Farrells, the Tom Daly's, even the Ty Burn, who, who who was let go by Leicester. I'm sure a lot of those guys were, they had a cause to prove that, you know, they'd been overlooked slightly for professional rugby. So their cause was to fight for that professional contract, you know, and show people they were good enough. And they did it, you know. And um, I think there were a lot of other players who were unlucky not to to, to, to get a similar reward, you know. So it, it, it was a fantastic time. And um, you're making me homesick for, uh, for, for Lansdowne. Yeah. <laughs> Go back, yeah. Um... Cheers for your time. You've been brilliant. Um, but just one or two more things. You mentioned um, you mentioned there that when you were younger, or whatever, with not understanding the growth and the different phases, that you would beat yourself up as a coach. And I can see. I think I've been doing it for kind of five, six years now, and I certainly see at the start like you'd lose it. I'd lose a game, and I just you know even worse than a player. I don't know because when you're a player, I don't know. It's I think it's easier to take, but um. The more I go on, the ease, the more I understand that. But were there times when you were really, really hard on yourself and would really beat yourself up and kind of, yeah, be down for periods of time? Oh, 100%. Many, many times, you know. And now you bear in mind, I've had a very, very lucky career where I, you know, I won, you know, lots of championships and, and lots of cups and different titles, you know, so at all levels, you know. So, um, you know, I've been very, very fortunate to have a lot of success as a coach. Uh, you know, whether it's winning the provincial championship with with Leinster, for example, or winning the All Ireland League with Lansdowne, or winning the Welsh League and the Welsh Cup with Swansea, uh, winning the <laughs> Six Nations with Wales. You know, um, and so many others. And even Division Three Southwest with my local team Mumbles. You know, there've been so many times where we've won stuff. Uh, my first gig was in in my local club, and we won the league. 
my first season uh, and the cup the year after. So I've been very, very lucky, you know, very, very lucky. Um, but in between that, when I haven't been lucky, uh, I've been miserable because, <laughs> you know, when you lose, you beat yourself up. And uh, if I could do it all again, Brian, um, I'd love to have a mentor. I'd love to have a mentor. I'd love to have somebody I could pick a phone up to and, and, and chat to and say, listen, you know, I my mood has dropped. I've lost two or three games on the bounce. The chairman's given me a hard time. Uh, you know, I'm scratching my head here a little bit. I've got to come up with all the solutions. A bit like you said, you could, you lose a player, you as as a, you lose a game or two as a player, you could have you could have been man of the match or the best player for your team. You still lose, so you walk away. Your chest is still out. When you're the coach, when you're the coach, uh, you know you take it personally. If well, I think you do. If you if if you've got any real love of of what you do, you, you're gonna you're gonna beat yourself up before you beat anybody else up. You know. Um, and, you know, I probably got to the end and, and when I say I was a bit grumpy, I think, you know, I realised I needed to finish coaching because, you know, by the end I'd got to a place where, um, you know, it was unrealistic. I, unless I won every game, I just, you know, I, I sort of, my mood would dip, you know. So um, I think I think if I'd had uh, the experience of being able to sort of tap into a mentor and a, a, an older coach from time to time, Pick his brains, get some reassurance, discuss the stuff that we talked about there. You know, maintain. You know, this is what I think I'm doing well. Let's talk about that. This is areas that we we're not doing so well in with the team, or I don't think I I need to work on as with the team and and talk about those things. Out of that, might you might get that light bulb moment. You know, whereas when he's scratching around on your own in in that bad dark place where there's a low mood. Uh, and you get the phone calls off the press. Oh, you've lost two games, three games on the trot, four games on the trot, or you go out in, especially in Wales. You go out. I remember once uh, taking my kid, my boys, to to a swing, you know, down uh, to the playground, and they were on the sw- pushing them on the swing on a Sunday morning, and uh, I could see this guy looking over. I thought, oh, here he comes. I know he's going to give me. A- he's a rugby head, you know. So he comes over, and he said, "Hey, well played yesterday. Bloody great win." I said, "Oh, thanks very much. Bit of relief." Wipe my brow, and he went, "Yeah, but three weeks ago we were shit. Remember that, you know?" And, and then he sort of, "Oh no," oh, comes back to you. All the sort of dark days come back to you. So, I think if you could find an outlet for, you know, for some of that stuff as a coach, just to put some context on it, some perspective on it, uh, I think that's a good thing. Um, I would advise any young coach to do that. And it might not be a rugby coach. It could be a coach in a different sport, you know, but just somebody you can pick the phone up to now and again. I say, listen, I'm having a really bad day here now. Uh, you know, things haven't got a plan for whatever reason. Hey, do you fancy a coffee or a chat about performance, you know? Uh, and, 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 and I just think it just, it picks you back up, you know? And I probably, if I had my time again, I'd, I'd probably look into that, you know? Yeah, no, 100%. That's so true. And I, Saw there, like, I think it was two years ago, Eddie Jones brought in a guy, I think his name is Neil Craig, uh, an Aussie rules coach and just an older guy. And he was kind of just overseeing the coaches in that environment and just uh, somebody to lean on. And, you know, he doesn't know much about rugby, but it was, yeah, just an experienced coach. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, coaches realise how hard it is, you know, and, you know, it's, you know, fans can be quite tough because they don't quite understand the depth and the detail, you know. Um, and press conferences and stuff like that, you know, as a coach, 
the further up the ladder you go, you walk in, you know, you, you looked at the football from yesterday, uh, Ollie, uh, yeah, soldier, Oscar or whatever. Yeah, you know, you just fell for him, you know. Um, been a great servant for Man United. I'm sure he's worked his, his backside off over the last couple of years and the last couple of weeks or whatever to get the team to play well. And he didn't play well. You know, it happens. We've all had that. Um, he's got to walk into that press conference. He's got to chick stick his chest out and, and say, listen, you know, I, I can get there. You know, I've got to believe that I can get there. Because the chairman's got to believe he can get there. But then he probably goes home, talks to his wife, you know, uh, the bills are coming in, all this sort of, you know, the, your kid might be sick with the measles or whatever. Yeah. All those human things are going on around him. And he's got to deal with all that pressure as well. Now, I know, you know, you could say, well, he's very well paid, but I think, you know, he's a human being. Yeah. Uh, he needs somebody, you know, he needs his, he needs the Alec Ferguson's of this world to pick the phone up to him now and, and just have a chat to him and say, listen, you know, Let's talk about this. You know, this is, it happened to me. If you remember, Alex Ferguson was, I think they wanted to, Sack him. the fans wanted him out in the early days. You know, he, he had a tough time, you know. So um, you just can't go through this coaching gig without, you know, having the good and bad. And and, and it's, I think if you can find somebody that you can talk to and lay a bit off on, probably help you really, you know, um, to to keep a perspective around it. Yeah, for sure. And lastly, before I let you go, is there anything else you kind of would change about your career or regret um, besides that kind of mentor? Uh, not really, because, <laughs> because I think that um, once you check yourself in the high-performance ring, uh, it's, it's a tumble dryer. And, you know, you've only got to look at Know, the Olympics, you've only got to look at any sport. Uh, I mean, I love that documentary about George Foreman, you know, um, where, you know, it's going back to my day before your day, uh, Brian, but I remember George Foreman, everyone's frightened of him, and Muhammad Ali, they were worried about whether Muhammad Ali would ever, uh, you know, survive. Um, George Foreman would, 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 would knock his block off, you know, and Ali does the, you know, the rope of dope trick on him, and Knocks out George Foreman to the disbelief of everyone globally. Uh, George Foreman hits on tough times and leaves boxing, goes to become, uh, you know, a, a sort of a, a preacher, and eventually decides to make a comeback in in boxing and and eventually wins a world championship in in his forties. You know, amazing story. You know, but he had his dark days, he had his tough days, he had his great days. You know, once you put yourself in that high performance ring, it's um, it's a roller coaster, so I can't change anything, and I probably don't regret anything, and don't want to change anything because that was the ride. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's <laughs> you the just got to hang on to it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, I, I have to tell you, I probably do feel a bit burnt out from it at the end, and that's why I needed a break from coaching after thirty-five years. You know. Yeah. Um. So you know. Uh, no, that was my that was my journey. That was my uh, my my tumble dryer, really. So, um, yeah, that would be my advice. Try and find somebody you can open the door of the tumble dryer on now and again, and and ask the press pause and have a quick chat before they chuck me back in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's brilliant, Mike. Um, I let you go. You've been brilliant with your time, and uh, yeah, I just want to say thanks so much for all the help you've given me and influence you've had on me over the years. Um, yeah, very grateful for having the chance to be under you.
Well, it's very kind of you, Brian, because I, I didn't think that, um, you know, you were going to offer up uh, those sort of kind words to that level. It's much appreciated. And uh, like I said, you boys were fantastic uh, to me and Lansdowne. So it's something I'll always remember and cherish. Appreciate all your support as a player. And I wish you every success with this podcast and all the stuff you're doing now and uh, in life in North America. I'm so delighted for you. Well done. Cheers, Mike. A lot of hours go into making this podcast each week. If you enjoy listening to the pod and would like to support me in making it and making sure that it keeps coming out, I have a Patreon page and there's a supporters tier. You can sign up. It's monthly. And I don't know what currency you're in, but it'll be a very, very small amount. But that support would mean so, so much to me. Also, if you're an ambitious player or someone who's interested in self-development, if you're a coach and you want to help your players on the mental side of the game, I have a tier called The First 15. And on this tier, you'll get extra podcasts from me based around mental skills, sports psychology that'll help you become more confident, more accountable, develop stronger self-belief and give you tools to deal with adversity. I sometimes put out bite-sized, like shorter versions of these Patreon-only podcasts, so you can listen into them to get an idea. And there's a third tier, uh, one-on-one mentorship tier, for if you want to do exactly that, work one-on-one with me, so that I can help you become the player that you know you can be and achieve your goals. Lastly, if you're a coach or involved with a team, and you think it's important for players to be confident, have self-belief, be mentally strong, Send me a DM on Instagram or Twitter at Rugby, and we'll chat about what I can do to help your team become exactly that. Hope you enjoyed the chat. If you did, please subscribe to the pod if you haven't already and check out some of the earlier episodes. I certainly learned a lot from Mike there and really enjoyed catching up with him. He was one of the two best coaches I ever had and had a big impact on me. I was really lucky to play under him. It was funny, when I first came across Mike, it was when he was coach of the Irish 20s. At the time, I was captain of a Connacht 20s team that had Kieran Marmion, Jack Carty and Robbie Henshaw in the side, who have all gone on to become Irish internationals. And we beat the other three Irish provinces that year, which obviously wasn't done too regularly. Mike had me in a few camps uh, with the Irish 20s, but I didn't get capped that season and was an injury reserve for the Junior World Cup in South Africa. So, to be honest, I wasn't really too fond of him at first. But, to be fair to Mike, the guys he picked in the squad ahead of me were Ian Henderson and Tyg Byrne in the row, Jack Conan at eight and Josh van der Fleer in the back row as well. So, to be fair to Mike, he probably knew what he was at. Anyway, we built a great relationship then in Lansdowne after that, and I was his line-out caller when we won the All-Ireland League in 2015. If you'd like to support the pod, please share it with a friend and take 30 seconds to leave a rating and review if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. Just let me know in the review what you liked hearing from Mike or what you're enjoying about the podcast. I'd really appreciate if you do those two things. They should be pretty quick and easy to do. And thank you to the people who are already sharing the podcast. Really appreciate it.